Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, October 8th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of Business Insider. Hi, everyone. And Aaron Mershon of Stat News. Good morning. Later in the episode, we will play my interview with Amy Howe of SCOTUS Blog. Amy has taught me a lot of what I know about the Supreme Court, and she was nice enough to walk us through some of the possibilities of what the court might do with that case challenging the Affordable Care Act. And a reminder, if you missed it, last week we did our election preview for health issues, which you really should listen to if you haven't already. But let us get to the news. So obviously the biggest health news of the week is the COVID cluster at the White House, which now includes both the president and first lady. We don't know actually how the president is doing or even how far into the course of the illness he is. We do know he spent three and a half days at Walter Reed from last Friday night to last Monday. We also know he's on or has been given a lot of drugs normally given to patients with serious cases of COVID. So let's start with the health policy question. Trump's doctor cited HIPAA, the medical privacy law, in not answering a lot of reporters' questions about the president's condition. Kim, you wrote about this. Is that a legit excuse? Well, the main reason that he's not answering questions isn't just HIPAA by itself. It's that HIPAA has to have patients consent to which information gets shared. And so it became more clear as, you know, the president's doctor was doing these press briefings that the reason he was evading certain questions was because the president had explicitly told him, no, you may not talk about these parts of my care. It would have been nice if the doctor had said that. For sure. For sure. I mean, one thing to keep in mind, first of all, this is why I always push for, you know, health policy reporters to be upfront asking a lot of these questions uh, when it comes to the president's medical care, because first of all, we have a lot of knowledge about some of the privacy laws and we can ask follow up questions that are along the lines of, you know, why aren't you answering this question exactly? And um, and the doctor himself, you know, he's he's not only the president's doctor, the, the president is also his boss. And so that really complicates a lot of the relationship here. I do feel like Dr. Conley got a little bit more comfortable. And if you look at some of the statements that he's put out in the last few days, just explicitly saying, this is what the president has authorized me to share. So being a little bit more clear, you know, he's not a, a spokesperson necessarily, but talking to the press, yes, is part of his job. So while President Trump clearly has the right to keep his medical information private, and there is a long checkered history of presidents not being straight with the public about sometimes serious illness or injury. There's another question here. The president has a highly contagious illness, and he is, shall we say, not following best medical advice for how not to spread it to others. What should the public actually be entitled to know about his illness? And I would think particularly those who might come into personal contact with him. Well, especially because, you know, this isn't just a question about how this would impact White House staff or other officials, because there's already a growing outbreak there, but also... 
just this morning, <laughs> the president's campaign manager, who I should point out also has coronavirus, uh, said that instead of participating in a virtual debate with Joe Biden, he's going to hold a rally instead. And he says, oh, he'll test negative by then. But that's not possible to know at this point. And because we don't know when he got the infection and what his state is now, the possibility that he would be out interacting in some fashion with the public is is pretty troubling. You know, I, I feel like there are so many norms that this president has blasted through this only being the latest of them. But is there, you know, there, there's talk about requiring candidates to disclose their taxes. Should there be some kind of new requirement for presidents to release some sort of health information? Remember, President Trump didn't really give us a lot of health information before he was elected either. He just had that letter from his doctor that said, he's the healthiest specimen I've ever seen. You know, should there be some threshold requirement for presidential candidates and presidents to issue enough health information that the public can make its own judgment about whether or not he's medically fit to hold the office? This is a topic I've written about a lot because really voters are sort of flying blind when it comes to understanding the president's health and understanding even former Vice President Joe Biden's health. He only released three pages of uh, details of his medical records. We don't know whether they're complete. You know, in other jobs, it's pretty common to get a sign up medically. Um, you know, if you're an airline pilot, if you're someone who's handling nuclear weapons, uh, you have to have a psychiatric evaluation. And so there has for a while, I would say, you know, pretty much since Ronald Reagan, been this question of should there be some sort of independent panel that evaluates presidents and candidates for the office and that signs off for them being fit for duty. Because what we have right now is people asking their longtime doctors who know them well to sign off on their health. And that really isn't an independent evaluation. Yes. And no matter who is elected, this will be the oldest president that the U.S. has ever had. It's not an insignificant issue here, but let us move on. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you'll know we've been checking in on the next round of COVID relief from Congress since the last one expired at the beginning of August. And until this week, there was not a lot of news on that front. Uh, the House passed a three trillion plus dollar bill in May. The Senate has pretty much refused to participate. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has been negotiating ever since with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. Over the weekend from his hospital suite at Walter Reed, President Trump was cheerleading to get a deal done. Uh, then in a Tuesday tweet storm, President said he was calling off negotiations until after the election. Then yesterday, he seemed to be walking that back, asking for maybe some targeted relief for the airline industry, which has started laying people off. What is happening here? Republican lawmakers and strategists were just baffled and horrified by the president declaring the talks over, essentially all but ensuring that more relief won't be going out before the election, but also ensuring that the blame would fall on the president and his party for that. Until now, they've sort of blamed Democrats for not meeting in the middle or not being serious in negotiations. And this completely undermines that narrative because they're sort of taking their ball and going home. And yet, I mean, is there any 
you know, the president is the president is famous for reversing himself. And I guess when we talked about the president's health, we did not we neglected to talk about the fact that he's on steroids, which if anybody has taken steroids knows they can mess with your mind. And so he seems to have been even more erratic than usual, which is <laughs> saying something for this president. So we don't know that he's not going to change his mind 10 more times in the next 24 hours. Right. I mean, are are there still talks on the theory that maybe something can be salvaged or is everyone sort of thrown their hands up at this point? I don't I think those of us who were covering the Hill, honestly, in the past, you know, even few months saw a hard, very difficult road ahead for a deal, you know, and even the possibility of passing something before the November election. The thing is, even if the president changes his mind or wants standalone bills, it's so far from what House Democrats are wanting to achieve. You know, even if you bail out certain industries, there's so much economic pain across so many different levels that it'd be difficult to, you know, pass something now and even then to pass something that would have any effect prior to the election. So I think that was a big part of it, too, that they kind of thought, well, even if we come up with a deal this week and we manage to pass something next week, those checks or that unemployment boost or what uh, nutrition aid, whatever it might be, wouldn't hit voters before the election. And so I think that was part of the calculus, too, to focus instead on the Supreme Court confirmation battle. So the politics of this are really, really hard to fathom. As Alice said, it would be in Republicans' interest to have more relief go out before the election, particularly in President Trump's case, because the economy is his best issue, according to polls. Um, Yet the Democrats are willing to do that because they see people suffering and they want help and they're up for election, too. And also, I think if the Democrats win, they would not like the economic economic hole to grow even deeper, which is definitely possible. But is there any benefit to Republicans in blocking this other than what, Kim, you were just saying about the focus on the Supreme Court? Although that focus on the Supreme Court could also backfire politically. Uh, You already see lots of Democrats leaping on this and saying they'd rather steal this Supreme Court seat than use that same time to provide relief for struggling families, etc. It's sort of a attack that writes itself. And of course, they could do both. I mean, Congress is capable of walking and chewing gum. They just don't do it very often these days. Well, let us talk about the debate. We have no idea what's going to happen with the next presidential debate, which is set for next Thursday night, or whether there will even be a next presidential debate. Uh, the, uh, the the Debate Commission uh, had, an, had announced as of this morning that the next debate would be virtual, probably in light of the fact that we don't know whether the president is still contagious or still will be next week. Uh, and then the president immediately said he doesn't want to participate in a virtual debate, uh, in part, and he said this because he could be muted when he talks too long. <laughs> but the vice presidential candidates, Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris, did get together in a slightly social distance way in Utah last night. Um, before we even get into what was said here, can we talk about the safety run up to this debate? Clearly, Pence, despite what has been said, has been exposed to people who have tested positive, including the president. Yet it was the White House that derided the idea of having plexiglass separators. Uh, And of course, those plexiglass separators were pretty small, didn't look like they did very much. Do people really think swing voters are going to vote for the president because they see the Democrats as COVID wimps? We talked earlier about hygiene theater, um, about doing things that 
sort of make people feel safer, but really aren't. Is there really something to the politics here that the Republicans are trying to press the Democrats, you know, that we've seen the president deride Vice President Biden for wearing a mask. And now we've seen them, you know, go after the Democrats for wanting more protections. And obviously now to to ask for this virtual debate next week. I mean, this obviously seems part of the Republicans play to play to the people who think that this is all being overblown. I'm just wondering, are there that many people who think that this is overblown? I think it could backfire on Republicans. You know, a, a moment a moment from the first presidential debate that also jumped out to me in addition to uh, mocking mask wearing was um, when Biden was saying, you know, my campaign events are safer because they're smaller and we socially distance. And Trump replied, oh, well, your campaign events are smaller because nobody wants to come to them. And so, yeah, again, promoting that line that Democrats are being COVID wimps. But I think, you know, for anyone who knows someone who has either passed away or has gotten sick and struggled, which is millions and millions of people, you know, it could come off as Republicans being far too cavalier about the illness and basically telling other people to take risks that they themselves aren't taking. And most people don't have access to state-of-the-art free medical care that uh, lawmakers and the president have access to. So saying plexiglass is for wimps and so is social distancing and so is masks when, you know, if, if any of us got sick, it would be a lot more costly and devastating as a dicey proposal. And also, I mean, you know, the president now who's still on steroids says that he feels great and steroids can do that to you. He's saying that, oh, he was cured. We don't know if he's cured. We don't know which of the many drugs that he got helped cure him. And also it's not necessarily over, but he seems to be saying that, oh, you get it and you get better and everything's fine. But Alice, as you say, we know that a lot of people get it and then they don't get better or they get mostly better or they get better and then they have a relapse. There seem to be an awful lot of people who having had this this illness, are still not doing that well many weeks or even months later. I mean, the president is once again sort of basically providing a huge platform for COVID misinformation. Well, I do think he is also tapping into, I, I you know, when talking to people in other states, there is some frustration with, you know, let's get going, let's get back to normal already. Um, you know, even though obviously hundreds of thousands of people have died, Millions of people have also been infected, but millions of people have also, you know, recovered okay. And there is, I do think that he's tapping into, you know, is it significant enough to change the election? I, I think polling shows that people tend to be more on the cautious side when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. But I do think that he is tapping into something that exists with a lot of voters, which is a frustration that this is overblown. You know, people who've lost their small businesses, people who've had to lay a lot of people off. You know, there are still people who might feel the economic pain more so than the healthcare pain, just depending on where they live in the country and, you know, who they're associating with. I, I, just, I think this president has sort of taken the tack for months now that sort of it's a sign of strength not to wear his mask. And I think that clearly resonates with his supporters. The video of him, you know, taking a motorcade ride while he was COVID positive on Sunday, I want to say, you know, there were supporters lining the streets without masks, despite knowing that this president literally has the disease. And I think you can, you know, there's good reporting even now that even as he's gotten it, there are people who are like, this isn't real. Or if I get it, I'll just get better just like he did. I think that clearly there's a, a chunk of people who 
support him and support that attitude. Yeah, I I just also want to say that a lot of this is setting up this false binary that we've seen for so long. The idea that it's either total lockdowns and economic devastation or, you know, we all go back to normal. And if some people die of the disease, oh, well, there that's not the choice. We can take steps like mask wearing to be safe, to enable business to resume uh, more and, you know, There are steps that could be taken to, you know, work with schools, but a lot of that is is just not happening. Also, Congress could do more to ease the economic pain in the meantime, and they aren't. So I think it does resonate to blame public health precautions for the economic pain. But I think everyone should remember that it's not an either or. Yeah, that is a fair point. Well, let us talk about the debate briefly, because there wasn't that much there. There were a lot of really good health questions asked by the moderator, Susan Page, and I don't think any of them got answered. Either Pence, but Senator Harris, either. Um, Did any Anybody hear anything that jumped out as new other than the fact that Pence did not for the millionth time want to answer the question of what would the administration do about pre-existing conditions if the ACA got overruled? I don't know if it's new, but there's an interesting moment that uh, I think is worth highlighting with respect specifically to the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, Senator Harris has said a couple of times now that, you know, if Dr. Fauci recommends it. If scientists, if doctors recommend it, she would take the vaccine. But if it's just President Trump recommending it, she would not take the vaccine. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Vice President Pence shot backs, you know, you're undermining public confidence in the vaccine. This is unconscionable. And I think that highlights a really interesting dynamic. First of all, I think, you know, it's frankly a little ridiculous for Republicans to be sort of using this anti-vax line, although Pence stopped short of that at last night's debate. But I do think for Democrats, it's a tough line to walk between sort of wanting to foster public trust in an eventual COVID vaccine, but also recognizing the sort of politicization of the vaccine approval process that we've seen under President Trump. That's a tough line to walk. And I think they're they're trying, but I'm not sure they're necessarily succeeding. Yeah, I I think she did sort of a little clearer job last night than she did a little earlier when she sort of said it's been politicized and I won't take it. And I think there, there was enough public health blowback on her to say, you know, really, that's not quite the way you should talk about it, that she did seem a little more careful. Right. And I mean, that that dynamic has been has been brewing for weeks. But I think that polls are showing that public confidence in a vaccine is much more influenced by President Trump's promises and contradictions of his own top health officials and insistence that something will come out before Election Day. Now, I think it's really interesting that this week when he made these wild videos claiming he, he'd been cured by these experimental treatments he got, sort of tucked in there as an aside was an admission that a vaccine would not come until after Election Day. So he's basically saying, okay, forget about the promises I made before about a vaccine before an election day, but here we have this cure. Of course, it is not a cure. It is an experimental treatment that hasn't been fully studied, and we don't even know if that's what contributed to his seeming somewhat recovery that we're seeing. So I think that the public health experts I've talked to said anyone who tries to put a firm deadline or date on a vaccine is really undermining confidence because they have control over the process. And so it sets up the dynamic where if they're pledging a certain date, that's not how science works, people will really wonder if they're uh, manipulating things. Oh, I was just going to add that I think that it wasn't just Trump's comments this week uh, in that strange video that you mentioned, where you sort of saw the FDA also putting out stricter guidelines. 
that's my next topic. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> that's okay. The FDA apparently did an end run around the White House over standards for conditionally approving a coronavirus vaccine. Aaron, can you walk us through how Steve Hahn earned the ire of President Trump, but the thanks to the makers of these vaccines? Yeah, I think I mean, I think this is an interesting case study. These these are really guidelines that the FDA wants to see for uh, an eventual vaccine approval. And I, and I don't think they're the, they're not the kind of thing we normally cover as sort of a big regulation. It's sort of a, a simple guideline. But nevertheless, the White House was sort of sitting on this, uh, guideline because they were worried that the sort of stricter requirements, I believe the biggest sticking point is about waiting a median of two months after a patient gets a second dose of the vaccine in order to sort of see how it goes basically for those two months. And I think, you know, the White House was sort of sitting on these because that timeline would probably preclude getting a vaccine out before election day. Uh, and so what the FDA did was just put them out as part of some other briefing materials for an upcoming meeting and then eventually publish the guidance, too. And, of course, prompted a very irate President Trump to tweet at Steve FDA or whatever his Twitter handle is. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was I, I thought this was actually kind of clever on the FDA's part, you know, because we've seen so much political interference with FDA and CDC and NIH that they were able to. And, and you know, and, and sort of I think sort of the public should thank the FDA. I mean, it was really sort of FDA doing sciences bidding to try and boost the public's confidence in the FDA process and in the idea that whatever vaccine does emerge, that it will have been thoroughly scientifically vetted before it is released to the public, which we've had some questions about some of the FDA actions in the last few months. I mean, does this does this help FDA's credibility going forward? I think it'll be interesting to see. I think there are still a number of moments in the vaccine approval process where things could still go wrong, I guess I'll say. I, I'm, I'm reluctant to make big predictions about the Trump administration and its politicization of science, given just how much we've seen them putting pressure on the FDA thus far throughout this pandemic. And I think last night's video when he was talking about wanting to get emergency authorizations for the monoclonal antibody treatments that he received, one is from Regeneron and one is from a competitor at Eli Lilly. But the way he's talking about that approval process, I think also raises some questions. So I don't think we're out of the woods when it comes to sort of the president putting pressure on the FDA. But I do think I think you're right that I think the FDA is sort of clearly willing to take at least some small steps to try to reassure the public here how big of a step it is and how much power they really have. I think is a little bit still up in the air. Which brings us to the CDC, um, which finally this week says that, yes, COVID can be spread by aerosol. At least they're saying that for now. As you will remember, the CDC put up guidelines saying this a couple of weeks ago and then pulled them down. They said that they weren't ready, but we also know that the White House complained. Now, basically, the message is that the virus is mostly spread through large droplets, so wear a mask and stay six feet away, but also through aerosols. And in some cases... Um, um, but less likely through touching things that infected people have touched. So you can really stop washing your groceries and your mail, but still be careful. Uh, this seemed to gel with most of what, you know, I think science has been saying over the past few months. But is this guidance too little, too late? I feel like so much misinformation is already baked in. So much misinformation is already baked in. I mean, I, I think the best example of this was, and not on the airborne point specifically, but honestly, these past few weeks and the outbreak in the White House and on Capitol Hill have been proof that the misinformation is so baked in, even among highly educated, highly informed people who are making policy about this. The little plexiglass barriers that were put up for last night's debate were widely mocked because air can go around a small sheet of plexiglass, obviously. 
This is an airborne virus, you know, indoor events have air circulation systems that move things around. You know, there were studies months ago about people getting infected in, in restaurants where the IHVAC system was circulating and carrying the virus from sort of one area to another. Um, but also, you know, we had lawmakers like Senator Ron Johnson get tested and then go to an event while he was waiting for his test results. And when asked about this, he said, oh, well, I felt fine, so I thought it was okay. It was just a precautionary test. The CDC has said you need to quarantine while you are awaiting test results. And there have been reports just for most of this year that you can, you know, be asymptomatic and still transmit the virus. And so the fact that our top lawmakers (laughs) (laughs) and top officials are not really showing that they understand the nature of the virus. If they have those misconceptions, just imagine what average folks out there who aren't as clued into all of this are thinking. Well, and obviously this is going to affect the the Senate's, you know, effort to uh, approve the Supreme Court nominee because they can only lose two more Republicans to have have vowed not to not to vote for her. And we've got three senators, three Republican senators right now who've tested positive for COVID. And one I now I can't remember which one it was. I guess it was it Tom Tillis who said he would show up in a moon suit to vote if he had to. No, I thought that was Ron Johnson also. <sighs> it, it It's interesting to see sort of the reaction of kind of official Washington. I mean, obviously, this has been hitting all over the country all year. But now it seems to have, you know, we have we have a a definite cluster in the White House, and sort of a growing outbreak on Capitol Hill, where they don't yet have a system of testing. Although I would imagine that that would change first. And this would have been a good time to rewind to April and May, and get those public health messages a little bit clearer. Yes. Well, what's what's also tricky is that it's really difficult for people people to differentiate between shifting guidance that shifts because science learns new things about a new virus and shifting guidance that's because of this political interference and folks trying to edit what the CDC scientists want to put out to the public, which happened on schools, which happened on this airborne guidance, which has happened on a number of fronts. And so I think what people see is just the shifting guidance and that reduces trust and there's it's hard to sort of point to what's normal and what's abnormal i still don't know how to properly wash my mask Kim, you wanted well, to say something. I, I do i do because i you know i have been going up to the hill um to do some reporting and you know the thing is what mask wearing has become much more common but i think that they have to reconsider a lot of the ways that they're doing things first of all they're frequently taking their masks off to speak in hearings, um, to speak before reporters in press conferences. And this is both parties. And that should probably be reexamined, especially given the information that we know about aerosols now. Um, you know, if you're wearing the mask, but you're not doing it properly, or you're wearing the same mask regularly, or you're taking it off regularly, you know, I've talked to a lot of lawmakers who are touching their faces a lot and readjusting as they're interviewing with me. You know, I think there should be a stronger look overall. You know, there's it's it's not that helpful to follow the guidance, but not follow it in a way that you make sure that you're really protecting people. And so, you know, testing is one thing, but also not just wearing a mask, but doing so properly in the way that protects the most people, I think, has to be reconsidered as, you know, Congress continues to do its work. 
Wear it over your nose, people. It's my biggest pet peeve. Yes. <laughs> so tired of people with masks over their mouth, but not their nose. Like that doesn't really do anything. There was a great headline. I forget where it was, but it was your nose is a super spreader. And it was explaining exactly that, like how much virus can come out of your nose, even if you're covering your mouth with a mask. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, that is as much news as we have time for this week. Um, and we did talk about the lawsuit uh, about the Affordable Care Act. So now we're going to play my interview with Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog about what could really happen with it. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Amy Howe, who is the co-founder of the invaluable website SCOTUS Blog and the host of SCOTUS Blog's podcast, SCOTUS Talk. I can tell you Amy is my go-to expert when I have a question about the court and over many years has helped make me a lot smarter about all things Supreme Court. Amy, welcome to What the Health. Thanks for having me, Julie. It's always great to talk to you. So obviously, we're here to talk about the latest case challenging the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Let's start with a name. Is it Texas v. California or California v. Texas or both? Uh, it is technically California versus Texas. There are two cases, California versus Texas and Texas versus California. But California got there first. And so when the Supreme Court granted review and then consolidated, put them together, the one with the lower number gets the, gets to win, gets to have the uh, the case name. One of the important things about whether or not it's California v. Texas or Texas v. California is that the U.S. is not technically a party to this case, right? This is not the administration's case. That's right. The, you know, this is a case in which the United States is participating, and there will, in fact, be four lawyers at the lectern at the oral argument in November. Uh, some of them are familiar to your listeners because they've been there before back in 2012. And so it, it's not entirely clear who's going to be arguing for California or Texas. I would expect that the solicitors general, the lawyers who represent those states in the Supreme Court, are going to be arguing on behalf of those states. But there have been news reports that Don Verrilli, who was the Solicitor General of the United States back in 2012 and who defended the individual mandate successfully then, is going to be representing the U.S. House of Representatives. And then the United States will also be arguing as a sort of friend of the court, so to speak, on behalf of Texas, supporting Texas. And that will be Acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall, presumably. And it's a longer than usual uh, oral argument, right? That's right. They've expanded it, I believe, to 80 minutes. That sounds uh, right. 40 minutes on both sides. And it could go longer than that. You know, there, there's nothing that says that it, it, it only is going to be 80 minutes and it likely will. So our regular listeners already know a lot about the background of this case and how it got to the Supreme Court. Just a reminder that a group of Republican attorneys general and a couple of governors sued on the grounds that reducing the individual mandate penalty to zero means there's no longer a tax and thus the law can't remain standing under Congress's taxing power, as five justices said back in 2012. I'm explaining that correctly, right? Yes. So what we really want to know now are the possible outcomes. And it's different depending on who fills the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat and when, right? That's right. So this case will be argued on November 10th, a week after Election Day. And the president, the White House, Senate Republicans had all been saying that they want to have a Justice Amy Coney Barrett on the bench by Election Day, which would mean that, that she would be on the court in time for this argument 
But we don't know if that's going to happen, particularly in light of all of the news about the coronavirus and some of the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, like Senator Mike Lee, now having tested positive for the virus, whether or not that's going to push anything back at all. So there's a lot going on in terms of who's going to be on the bench. What happens if there's only eight justices when the court hears the case? Um, First of all, will the court definitely hear the case on November 10th if there is not a ninth justice, or could the arguments be moved? The arguments could theoretically be moved. Uh, I would be very surprised if they did move them, um, in part because it would look like they were waiting for the ninth justice, which would be kind of unusual. They don't like the idea that they can't get their work done. You know, you, you may remember back in 2016, Justice Breyer said, you know, we're, we're doing fine with, with eight justices. And also because everyone thinks this is going to go to a 4-4 tie, and, and that might not necessarily be the case. Someone else was asking me, you know, what could happen? I said, you know, the conservatives might just say it's not a very strong case, and it could be, you know, 5-3 to three or 6-2 to two to basically throw the lawsuit out. I mean, that's not inconceivable, right? It is not at all inconceivable. You know, there are, this is like one of those sort of choose your own adventure novels, particularly in terms of reporters, both for the argument and then in particular after the argument when we're trying to anticipate what the Supreme Court could say and have our stories ready. You know, you've got to be ready for all kinds of different possibilities. Yeah, there's nothing harder than pre-writing a Supreme Court decision when it is not entirely obvious. Um, but we should make sure that people know if if there are eight justices when they hear the case and a ninth justice is added later, that justice doesn't get to participate in the case, right, if they miss the oral arguments or do they? That's right. It's a, I'm not even sure that there's necessarily any sort of rule or law that would prohibit the ninth justice from participating in the case, but it's just not done. Uh, you know, the, the idea is that you've got to be on the bench both when the case is argued and then again when the case is decided. And so, you know, when a justice has been on the court, but for some reason not able to participate, for example, when Justice Ginsburg had been sick at times, when Justice Thomas this past term was out briefly, you know, they may listen to the audio or read the transcript and then vote on the case. But when the justice has not yet been confirmed, they do not participate in the case. And what happens if it is a four to four tie? If it's a four to four tie, then the lower court's ruling stands. And so the Fifth Circuit's ruling, sending the case back to the district court for the district court to take another look at it, would stand. Which means the case wouldn't really be over because we would then we would just have to wait for Judge O'Connor to take another look and decide what he thinks, what parts of the law can stand and what can't, and send it back to the district court, right? Exactly. It wouldn't do anything to the law except extend this limbo, perhaps for another couple of years. That's right. <laughs> so, so what are the possibilities if there is a ninth justice? It's not just binary. It's not just, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down on the whole law, right? There are a whole lot of intermediate things they could do. That's right. So the first hurdle that the challengers, and there are individual challengers, people who say that they don't want to have to buy health insurance, that the health insurance would be a lot more expensive, and then the states, and for convenience, we'll call them sort of Texas and the, the other red states, you know, the Supreme Court has to agree that they have a legal right to sue, known as standing. Um, and so that's one ground on which the Supreme Court could get rid of the lawsuit altogether. They could decide that nobody has a legal right to sue. I'm not sure how likely that is, but it's a possibility. 
Then the second big question is what many people think of as the main question in the case is whether or not the mandate is still constitutional now, now that you no longer have to pay anything if you don't get health insurance. And, you know, just to sort of take everyone back to 2012, as you did in the introduction, you know, back in 2012, the chief justice and the court's former liberal justices said it was constitutional because it was a tax. And the other four conservative justices said, no, this is crazy. Um, And so the chief justice is still there. Three of the four liberal justices are still there. You know, Justice Ginsburg passed away in September. But the interesting thing is, you know, the current justices on the court and what they might have thought about the mandate. You know, you still have, you know, Justice Scalia has passed away. Justice Kennedy has left the court. Justice Kennedy has been replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Kavanaugh, when he wasn't on the Supreme Court, but when he was on the D.C. Circuit, he wrote a dissent when the D.C. Circuit had its own individual mandate case that at least suggested that he might view the mandate the same way as the Chief Justice, John Roberts, that that it was a tax. So, you know, so background, you know, we don't know exactly how that this is going to play out in terms of how people view the mandate. But then you also have to figure out whether or not there are five votes to say, now that there's no longer a penalty, it's unconstitutional. So that's the first question in the case. The next question in the case is, even if there are five votes to say it's unconstitutional, then what happens? And a lot of lawyers in Washington think that this is really the big part of the show. This is a question called severability. You're going to hear a lot about severability in the next couple of weeks and months. And this does not seem like, you know, a clear-cut win for the challengers. Uh, I went to a Supreme Court preview. There are a lot of these in the weeks leading up to the start of the Supreme Court's term. And Paul Clement, who was the former Solicitor General, he's argued 100 cases before the Supreme Court, argued in the individual mandate case, you know, on behalf of the challengers, said he thought that the challengers in this case had a very uphill battle. (laughs) Paul Clement, by the way, is the conservative darling. The conservative darling, exactly. He's on the president's list of potential Supreme Court nominees. Um, You know, he didn't get it this round, but, you know, he might be in the mix in a future round. Not some liberal pushover by any stretch of the imagination. So the, the severability argument you can break down. So then the question becomes, and do you throw the baby out with the bathwater? Do you throw out the entire ACA? Do you throw out a small part of the ACA, the, the provisions that sort of go along with the mandate, known as the guaranteed issue and the community rating? Um, Which, by the way, are the pre-existing, pre-existing condition, condition protections. protections. <laughs> and that is what the federal government had actually argued in the lower courts. You just throw out the pre-existing conditions provisions in addition to the mandate or do you just throw out the mandate? Which would have basically no effect, right? Because Which would have right. basically no effect. Because now it says you have to either buy insurance or pay a zero penalty. And the interesting thing is that, you know, the Supreme Court hasn't addressed this question before in the context of the mandate. But the Supreme Court did address severability twice uh, this year um, in two cases, one involving the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau and one involving robocalls. Um, And in both of those cases, uh, the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh said there is a really strong presumption that you're just going to take out the unconstitutional provision 
and nothing else. Um, Justice Kavanaugh had this sentence that you, you could probably, again, going to hear a lot of something along the lines of, you know, constitutional litigation is not gotcha, where, you know, you go after one small provision so you can take down the whole act. So so basically, I mean, the Democrats are obviously, you know, basing their whole fall campaign on, oh, my goodness, the entire Affordable Care Act is at risk. Technically, it is. I mean, they could. But the betting among legal experts is that it was basically zero before and now it's more than zero, but still not a very high probability. Is that a fair way to describe it? I think that's right. And obviously, the consequences, if all of the sort of court watchers and legal experts are wrong, and there are five justices who agree that the mandate is unconstitutional, and it means that the whole ACA has to go, or even the the guaranteed issue pre-existing conditions provisions have to go, are enormous. And so, you know, you can certainly understand why the Democrats have seized on that as a strategy. But the conventional wisdom, I think, among legal experts and court watchers is that the likelihood that the entire ACA is in jeopardy is actually relatively low. So you've been at this a long time. I've been at this a long time. You've been at it longer. Have you ever seen a law that's been challenged on constitutional grounds this repeatedly? I I can't think of one. I mean, it's been so... Fascinating, because, you know, sort of constantly under attack, you know, between we're on round two with the mandate, you know, we've had subsidies, we've had the contraceptive mandate, you know, from both sides. <laughs> and multiple times. And multiple times. Yes. You know, it is it so, is the gift that keeps on giving for Supreme Court reporters. Well, good. Well, we will, we will definitely talk to you again. Amy Howe, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's always great to talk to you. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Kim, why don't you start this week? Sure. I picked a project that we did at Business Insider. Um, It's called Meet the 30 Young Leaders Who Are Forging a New Future for Healthcare in the Pandemic Shadow. This is an annual list that Business Insider does, and it's something that the whole healthcare team pitched in on. Um, And we had some really interesting interviews with entrepreneurs, and there's also a health policy person in there. Um, So I encourage everyone to check it out. Excellent. Erin. So I picked a story from KHN reporter Marky and Harluck, and it's called Not Pandemic Proof, Insulin Copay Caps Fall Short, Fueling Underground Exchanges. It's a really interesting look at a sort of black market for insulin in which people use sort of social media and word of mouth to connect with people who have insulin to spare because they maybe can't afford it. It's obviously illegal to share prescription medicine, but especially as insulin access has become an issue during the pandemic, or a bigger issue, I should say. The folks at Markian spoke with sort of say it's about saving lives. It's more important than it might seem. I think it's also particularly relevant after last week's debate, I want to say, because President Trump claimed that he had made insulin as cheap as water, which obviously he has not. And I think there was a study just this week that found that the U.S. is paying 11 times what most countries are paying for insulin. So uh, clearly not as cheap as water. Insulin costs still a problem. Alice. Uh, Yes, I picked a piece uh, in the New York Times by our friend of the pod, Sarah Cliff. (laughs) She did a very smart calculation of how much President Trump's uh, treatment and hospitalization would cost for someone who isn't the president. uh, And it is upwards of $100,000. And she broke down a lot of things around the hospital treatment, like the helicopter ride, air ambulances is rife with surprise billing and um, costs for 
for folks. And um, also, you know, being tested again and again and again repeatedly for COVID, a lot of times insurers won't cover that. Um, and it, you know, she didn't mention here, but it, it also made me think of um, Chris Christie, who's COVID positive right now, and said he checked himself into a hospital, even though he was feeling okay, you know, just as a precaution, because he has asthma. That is something that the average person would never be able to do because of the cost. And so I think, as he's saying, you know, don't be afraid of the virus, let's get back to normal life. I think it's important to see just how far out of reach um, the kind of treatment he received would be for you and me. Yeah, I think most people don't have $100,000 lying around. Um, My story is from The Atlantic. It's called Trump's Doctor Comes from a Uniquely American Brand of Medicine by Eleanor Cummins. And it's an excellent look at at the practice of osteopathic medicine, which I was sorry to see take a fairly uninformed beating on social media after it was revealed that that's what Dr. Conley is. Uh, Like many people on the coasts, I had never heard of osteopathic physicians until I started covering Medicare in the 1980s when I realized they are treated identically by federal health programs to MDs. And that's because people with DO degrees are equally medically trained as those with MDs. They just have some additional training in musculoskeletal medicine. And there's a lot of elitism here. DOs tend to practice in rural areas and in primary care, the not so sexy but really important stuff. And this year, for the first time, MD medical school graduates and DO medical school graduates are competing side by side for the same residencies and will do their postgraduate training side by side. So read this story and please stop being a snob about this. That is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good, even where we are in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Aaron. I'm at E.E. E. Mershon. Alice. At Alice Olstein. Kim. At Leonard K.L. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.